good afternoon. Uh, thank you very much for coming. I would like to, uh, to this panel, uh, this is an opportunity and actually the privilege to work with Ingrid. Ingrid is um, one of the most accomplished or seasoned journalists I've ever met or heard of, not to speak of having a privilege to work with. And now I know she will kick my ass for this. Um, she, if I would have, if we would have a, a time, or if I would have an opportunity to talk, for for example, about the number and of her awards, and I mean global, top global television journalism awards, we would probably spend an hour just naming those awards. Uh, so I would like you to welcome, and she will come. She came here today to talk a little bit about uh, journalism and about the work she did. Uh, please welcome Ingrid Formanek. Um, for the beginning, I would just ask if we can play the first video. Can I say something before yes. I play? Yes. He's not my paid PR agent, and I'm very humbled. But uh, anyway, he talked me into doing this, so it's nice to be here. You can play. savannas of Africa to remote islands in the Pacific, there is a mass extinction brewing. All right, start counting. Elephant seven. Species are vanishing at roughly 100 times the normal rate. If current trends continue, African elephants could be extinct in as few as 20 years, and coral reefs gone soon after that. The insects that pollinate our food are in trouble, as are these plastic-filled birds. In all, biologists fear the unthinkable three quarters of all known species could disappear in just a couple centuries. We've never seen anything like this. In all of Earth's history, there have only been five mass extinction events, one of which killed the dinosaurs. Now biologists say we are on the verge of the sixth. What are we doing to cause this? And is it too late to stop? CNN reporters traveled the globe trying to understand the vanishing. There was a trailer. Uh, can you please tell us a little bit about the project and what was your role at it, in it? <clears throat> so I basically I came up with the idea um, of doing a series on species going extinct. Now, some of you might be aware that there was a groundbreaking report that came out about two months ago where the world's top scientists warned that we are in the sixth extinction and up to a million species are risking going extinct because of human influence. This report we did three years before that. We could see it coming. And it's more important than ever, and the numbers you hear here in this report have changed since then. They're much more grim than we reported because extinction is speeding up. So the idea was to try and explain to people why they should care about these species because we live in an urban world. We're here, you know, people who live in Ostrava probably stay in Ostrava most of the time. People who live in cities don't have much connection with the real, with the outside world, with the natural world. And we try to explain why all these creatures that may not live in your direct sphere of influence matter to you and your existence, like the bee. If we lose the bees, we lose $4 billion worth of food every year because we have to pollinate artificially. In fact, in China, they're taking bees and manually pollinating um, uh, plants and, and trees because we're losing bees. In Germany alone, um, there's been a decline of 80% of insects 
Well, you know, most of you probably see an insect at home or a spider and you take a can of something and kill it because you want to have a clean house. The fact of the matter is it's part of a system that we rely on, but we no longer have a connection to it because we do live in cities. So I thought it'd be important to try and tell a story of species going extinct, and I'm planning on doing another one because it's much worse than we, than we thought three years ago. But that was the idea behind doing the vanishing, and it did, it did quite well, sadly enough, and the numbers have become worse. Uh, what was your role in it, producer? I produced the whole and series. And can you explain a little bit what it, what it uh, uh, you know, what, what does it mean, you know, to produce? It? Well, first of all, you have to come up with an idea that you think people will care about and and not switch channels, something that has to hold an audience. Then you have to sell it to the bosses, who, of course, you know, I may be a journalist, but we have to make money so we can survive. So they need to look at these these projects and make sure that they believe that people will watch it. And then you go out in the, once they, it gets approved, you go out in the field, you, you find the people you need to talk to, the people are experts who will send you down the right road, reporting-wise and editorially. And in the end, you film it, you, you produce it, you edit it, and you put it on the air, and, hope, and hopefully it will do well. And this series did very, very well. Um, we did the plastics as part of the series, which was a year before Richard Attenborough did uh, his plastics thing. And it went, not viral viral, but it went mini viral. I mean, a lot of people looked at it, and as far as I'm concerned, if this makes a difference to one person, it's a start. So that's, that's the way I approach these things. You know, Ingrid spent a lot of time, uh, a lot of time last couple of years uh, working on uh, uh, news stories and documentaries regarding the environmental issues, but this is uh, not, uh, this is like mostly last few years, but this is not how Ingrid started. Can you please tell us a little bit why did you get into journalism, and how did you get into journalism? Well, journalists uh, are some of the world's misfits because we don't really fit in anywhere else, and we like to break rules. So, um, and I had a curiosity about the world, and my childhood was was influenced by events. Um, the the Soviet invasion happened uh, when I was a child and made a huge huge impact on me of Czechoslovakia. It used to be Czechoslovakia, and ever since then, I used to read newspapers, and I wanted to be a journalist to report on things because I thought it was important. So for 30 years of my life, more than 30, I did war zones because I thought that's what was important, you know, tell stories of people elsewhere, of the wars that are carried out in our name by our, by our governments. And I did a lot of those, more war zones that I care to remember. And it is important to, to report on these things. But in the last few years, I've come to think that I believe that the climate and the environment is the existential crisis of our time, and I think it matters more than a, anything else. Presidents will go, warlords will disappear, ISIS is going to go away. It's, all those things fall away, but once we hit a certain point with the environment, with the climate, there's no going back. So I decided to try and do this as, as, my, as my gig for the, uh, for the next few years until I retire, which I hope will never be, because I like what I do. So what was your journey to, to, to journalism and to CNN? How did you get and what were the first stories you covered for CNN? I started as a technician because the more you know, the better you are at your job. So I started out filming and editing and uh, I was sent overseas in 1988 um, to CNN's Rome Bureau where I worked with Jim Clancy. I don't know how many of you were in the room when Jim gave his presentation, but he was a great journalist to work with and we had a lot of fun. Um, in fact, ah, there he is. Can you just give a wave? Jim Clancy, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to dis get distracted. 
he is so fabulous that one time I went to Nigeria to do a documentary with Jane Fonda. She's very involved in, in uh, girls' reproductive issues. Uh, teenage girls' sexual health is, is very much her thing. So I went to Nigeria to work on a documentary with Jane Fonda, and we walk into the office of the president of Nigeria, who was Obasanjo at the time. And there is Jane Fonda, me, the cameraman with my husband. Obasanjo looks at the three of us, and he says, where's Jim Clancy? So, you know, that, that tells you a lot. Jane Fonda doesn't matter when Jim Clancy is in the room. Anyway, sorry, I got distracted. No, 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 that's fine, that's fine. I just wanted to know, so you started at CNN at 1980, 1980, 1980. 85, 80, no, 85, 85 in New York, yeah. And, but oh. then I went, went to the Rome Bureau, and uh, within a year, we had one of the revolutions you know that was in what Americans think of as a football season changed the world you know and it was amazing to see governments fall and Jim and I covered a lot of those stories together and as I said earlier it was a real moment of elation and gave you a lot of hope for the world so that was that was a huge moment in my life and I thought this is a fabulous ride because you get to see history front front row um, pretty soon afterwards was the first Gulf War um, in Iraq, and I was part of the team that was in Iraq, and it was the first war that was basically transmitted live. So people in real time heard what was going on. And you really realize the importance of journalism We'll I want to, I want to interrupt it very quickly. By the way, you know, I highly recommend, I'm sure you can find it, there is a movie uh, made by HBO, American movie called Life from Baghdad. And it's basically, it's a movie about CNN crew, which Ingrid was part of. Uh, she was played by Helen Bonham Carter yes. in the movie. Uh, it's available online, I really recommend. Uh, it's also a very important movie for the, for the history of journalism because that, that was the story which kind of catapulted CNN I would like to respectfully disagree with Tomas. Uh, I do not like, I'm not a fan of the movie. Um, I thought real, real events were much more interesting than the way they portrayed it, but it was Hollywood and they needed to sex it up. And I promise you, I was not a drunk who flirted with my colleagues. So that's for the record, okay? <laughs> but, um, but it was an interesting moment in, in uh, journalism history because CNN until that time, it was become, it was getting stronger. It was starting to be recognized. But that was the war that defined CNN's role because we were the, the first satellite channel around the world. And both the US administration and Saddam Hussein's Iraq used us as a conduit channel, right? So I remember walking to a conference very late one time with the Minister of Information and all the other media were there waiting for half an hour and we sort of snuck in feeling very guilty, and the Minister of Information says, oh, thank God, CNN's here, we can start. And I realized, my God, we've really become important. But it was used, we knew we were used, so we were not exploited, but we were used as a channel back and forth between the Americans and the Iraqis. And then when the war came, we made television history because we broadcast the war live, and that was a great moment, which is why HBO decided to fantasize about real events. Uh, they came, then, then came what? Uh, then after, after the Gulf War? Or like, uh, talk about the biggest stories you, you covered. Biggest story. Ah, 1994, when uh, Nelson Mandela uh, took, uh, was elected as the first black African president of uh, South Africa. It was a great moment. 
Um, everybody was very worried because there was a lot of violence leading up to it, and a lot of people had no faith in this process working. And I had a great assignment. The last month before the election, I was with a small team, and we were told to follow around Nelson Mandela as he went around the country. And it was a big party. You know, the, 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 the speeches that he made were always preceded by musicians, so it was a great vibe to it. But it was an amazing thing to see Nelson Mandela because he's one of the few moral heroes of that time, along with Václav Havel, um, to see Mandela come into power. And that was also a really positive moment for South Africa where everybody had a lot of hope, just like with the revolutions, because you don't usually get events like this. Um, South Africa hasn't quite made the progress that everybody had hoped, but that was a great privilege, so that was a great moment. And then a lot of ugly things happened, like the Bosnia War, like Chechnya, like Somalia. But in Somalia, I learned how much of a difference we can make. I mean, we make a little bit of a difference in telling people stories about real-life people, what they go through. We, we bring the world to you, whether you do it on your, whether you see it on your phone, on your TV, or in your newspaper. But I'm not sure how many of you remember what happened in Somalia in the early 90s. Um, they had a civil war which resulted in, in a famine that killed 300,000 people in one year. But, and many famines are not made by nature. They're human-made because war is power, you control food, you control everything. So before, before the Americans and the United Nations went, invaded Somalia, we were there about half a year before doing a series of stories. We put them on the air, and they were so shocking, made such an impact, that I got a phone call from a, Congress, from a senator who had just been elected to the US Senate. And she said, we're going to discuss what's happening in Somalia, what to do about it, because of your stories. Now, that's a huge thing. We influence events. It didn't turn out very well in the end, but <laughs> we made an impact. Um, there's a singer called Chardet, which some of you may know. She composed a whole bunch of songs and made an album as a result of, of the stories that we did. So we can make a difference. Um, but you know what, I will do, uh, do, do a kind of side, side question. What is then, what is the role, what is the primal role of a journalist? What is our job? What is, what we are supposed to do? What is our primary job is to inform and educate. I mean, that's what we do. Unfortunately, the media is becoming very much an vehicle for entertainment um, because there's so much competition. So there's this need to constantly entertain because you can flick the channel or you can swipe your phone to see the next thing. So a lot of journalism has to engage in such a way that some media companies are turning left a bit and going the way of entertainment and not informing enough. Um, I think since Donald Trump got elected, I think there's a lot of focus in America, I think a little bit too much. There should be focus on Donald Trump, and we should be reporting everything that is happening, but I think it's been at the expense of the rest of the world. There's things happening that nobody knows about, um, and I think that role of the media, we need to get that back, because I don't think we report enough on, on things happening around the world, which do impact us because we're a global, global community. You know, what happens in Prague matters in Washington, and vice versa. So let's go back to post-Somalia. What were the other huge stories? Rwanda? Rwa yeah, Rwanda was a big one. Um, I mentioned it earlier. I think that's a stain on everybody's uh, conscience. 
after World War II, when uh, everybody said, you know, never again, um, they will not allow genocide to happen, Rwanda to this day remains a stain on the international community. Um, it made a huge impact on me on a personal level as well. Um, to this day, we take care of a young Rwandan man who's um, one of the victims of what happened in, in Rwanda. Uh, but it mattered in a way that the Western media didn't understand at the time. It was shameful what happened. Why nobody decided to get involved? Uh, Madeleine Albright was having discussions about what to call it. They didn't want to call it genocide. The Clinton administration didn't want to call it genocide because when you declare genocide, you have an obligation to do something about it, to stop it. So everybody dithered, you know, had discussions in halls, but nobody ever stood up and say, we must stop this genocide happening. And in fact, it's one of the things I'm more proud of doing at CNN and was also happened to be with uh, Jim over there. Um, immediately after the genocide happened, we set out to do a documentary uh, called Cry Justice to prove that this was not some African tribal war, that this was a pre-planned genocide, because that's a very, very different thing that war that happens because of a series of events cascade. It was a pre-planned genocide that people are aware of. Half a year before, a Canadian general by the name of Romeo Dallaire warned that this was gonna happen. Nobody paid attention to him. Maybe somebody would have been paid attention if they were Europeans or white. Um, but it was very important for us to show that this was a pre-planned genocide and that the world had a responsibility to do something about it. So we did that and um, it's one of the things I'm most proud of, Jim, to this day. Not a happy story. I mean, like you said it in the previous debate, uh, we don't do happy stories, or do we? There's, there are a few stories that have a good outcome in the sense that the world community pays attention and they help out, perhaps, in, with natural disasters or wars. Or on a personal level where you do, a, you do a story on a person who really is not in a position to better themselves in terms of their condition, in terms of their finances. And sometimes these stories get attention. There was one thing, and I don't know if you can, we can show a little yes, clip. Can, 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 we, can we play one. the clip uh, which stars uh, media awards, I believe? No, no, that's not but it. It's too late it. for parts no. of it. There, there is a clip called Media Awards. It's a terrible title, world according to Ingrid. But 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 uh, where was this? I mean, we, we can tell you a little, little bit about. Uh, you t where was this film? The, the story, uh, which is about. We will say a short clip. Yeah, that's ah, it. it. Uh, can we increase the sound, please? As a people, and I'm ashamed to, to say this, have perfected the system of hiding. Um, our friends, relatives, and other loved ones uh, who have intellectual disability away from sight. So out of sight, out of mind, no funding, uh, neglected, neglected completely. And the numbers of those neglected are enormous. Some three million mostly poor Kenyans live with intellectual and mental disabilities. Many live in slums like Kiandutu. Often, it's only Edda Minor trying to help. Hi. 
She finds people discarded by institutions. This is to let you know that your child has overgrown. We have done all what we could do. What is it? So this, this is a documentary we did in Kenya with my colleague David McKenzie. And it's on uh, people who have mental disabilities and illnesses. Because even in the Western world, we don't treat people correctly who have mental handicaps or disabilities, whatever you want to call it. Um, there's politically correct language. But even in the Western world, we treat people with either disdain or we're afraid of them because we don't know how to deal with them. Very often people are ashamed. If you think it's a big problem in the West, in Africa it's a huge problem. In Kenya alone, uh, there's some three million people who have some sort of a mental disability, intellectual disability. So we want to do a story on these people because they are literally locked away in dark corners. Um, when what happens is if, if a mother has a child that's mentally disabled, the father usually leaves. They don't want to have anything to do with it. So the mother is usually left caring for these children. I met one woman who had four kids. The youngest one was born with with something that could have been treated, but because she didn't have the money and the doctors really didn't care, the child became, became very ill mentally and handicapped physically. And she had to lock him up when she went to work to try and food for her kids because people would come in and try and rape the child because he was an easy victim. We saw other people who were chained to trees, other people who were chased from village to village to village because people believed they were possessed by the devil or they were evil. The stories were, were endless, but we, pro we profiled five people who had no means to better their situation. And the reason I'm proud of this is not because it got awards, but because once it aired, each one of those five people got lifetime care. People committed to taking care of them physically, giving them mental, uh, giving them um, medical help. So these five people were taken care of in life. And the woman you saw walking into the place where there was a, was a young, young girl uh, who was very ill, never been treated. The woman who, who showed us these things had a condition, she had schizophrenia and she dealt with it. And I have a lot of respect for her because it's, it's shame in Kenya to be schizophrenic. But she came out, she started, a, started an organization to try and help take care of these people. After this program aired, not only were those five people taken care of for life, another 250 people received wheelchairs, another carer that would take care of them for as long as they lived. And the Kenyan parliament took up this debate to change the laws and to take better care of the people. So this one I felt good about at the end and it was one of those mo most difficult things that I've had to do much harder than any war zone uh, that I've ever been to. But it mattered and it made a difference. And that's why we're journalists. Uh, besides the story, what other stories you covered or events made the biggest impact of on you and why? How about the second Gulf War <laughs> no. in Iraq? No. 9-11, went to Afghanistan, you know, spent, spent months and months and months after that doing the, the war, so-called war on terror. Um, I'm trying to remember, I, what, what else? 
every day there's something, but <laughs> it's hard to know what. I want to ask you another thing. I mean, like, how did journalism change in your years? You know, how, you know, from when you started, you know, in 1988, uh, 1985, right. and uh, what has journalism become became now, you know, like, how did it change? There's a number of things that have changed. A, opinions, opinions make their way into journalism much more often than they used to. Uh, the American media used to be the best about not expressing opinions and being very middle of the line uh, about that. That has changed a lot, and I think it's an effort to get people into, into the silos, to get them reading and to share stories, etc. That's one thing that's changed. I also think we did a lot more stories that needed reporting, that we felt had to be reported, that people didn't necessarily care about, but it was our obligation to inform. So I think we did a lot more of that stuff than, than we do now, uh, for the media in general. And then the social media has changed the landscape completely. You know, Very often media organizations will follow what you guys click on on, on your phones. And that shapes journalism, which I don't think it's necessarily correct because we need to tell people what is happening. We can't be driven by the child eating the candy and giving them more. So that has changed dramatically. Uh, we also live in a time um, where journalists are, you know, I think the journalists became targets in wars. Uh, I think it started yes. in Afghanistan. In before, this has, this has been a huge change for journalists because we used to go to places and people would perceive us as outsiders, not involved in conflicts. It started to change in Bosnia, when we became targets, and Somalia, and Chechnya, and from there on, where we were no longer seen as observers, we were seen as participants. And especially terrorist groups, they are looking for attention. So they can do something to somebody who's not known, but, or they could go after a big media organization because they know that that will give them a lot of attention. But it's also become much more difficult to cover the news because how do you explain to somebody who's never had a clean version of the news? Yes, we all have opinions, but we know what the facts are and we know what the, what the not truths are. And it's very difficult to explain that to people who don't come from that background. So we go to Afghanistan where really there is no tradition of, of media that's not associated with anybody or Iraq or the Congo. And it's very, very difficult to explain to people that you're really not taking sides. We are now seen as participants in conflict. In Bosnia, the Serbs hated CNN because they saw, thought we're, we're pro-Muslim and pro-Bosnian. Well, the fact is that, you know, wars are not even. And there's sides that, all sides commit atrocities, but there, but there's some sides who are much more of a sinner than the other side. So you tell that story. You know, you give everybody a hearing, but then you also have to make the call of do you let everybody, do you give everybody the same platform? So those things have changed dramatically. You know, becoming, becoming targets has made our jobs much more difficult, much more onerous. Um, we sometimes now have to travel with security, which we never had to do. And um, big media companies are now worried about the journalists being killed. So they have to take out insurance policies, and, you know, that sort of thing. But it's the reality of what we do. Uh, well, but it is kind of expected that journalists, you know, whenever you enter a war zone, you know, or conflict zone, you know, th things may happen. Although, as, as Ingrid said, you know, we were never <coughs> journalists. But what do you make out of that we also became targets now 
of the attacks which come from the White House, we, uh, attacks which come from the Prague Castle in, in Prague against journalists where President Zeman uh, is talking about that the journalists should be violated uh, from Slovak, former Slovak Prime Minister and other places. Um, what is happening? Why do you think this is happening? And, and because we're a scapegoat, because we tell a truth that's not liked. And if you tell a truth that somebody doesn't like, they're going to go after you. It's called, you know, shoot the messenger. Very often they're shooting the messenger and they're making it dangerous. We've had a number of colleagues attacked, even in the US, um, because they're a CNN. Um, I've lost a lot of colleagues over the years in, in war zones, but it's what's, what's dangerous now is that it's, it's happening in democracy, where we've always had a very privileged position to report on, and we did it responsibly for the most part. Now that's changed because we are now seen as the, the entity that makes up the bad news that's not liked. So that's, and people turn on us. I mean, you've, you've heard the things said about journalists from the White House, from Duterte, from Putin, it's, it's everywhere. And it's made our job much more difficult. Um, I want to also ask, you know, that you mentioned social media landscape that it completely changed uh, journalism. Uh, there is a lot of poison out there. There is a lot of vitriol out there. There is a lot of disinformation, lies out there. Uh, would you say that journalism, as we know it, this traditional journalism, uh, now is more important than ever, or, or in our lifetime? Oh, and absolutely, why? absolutely, because there is so much more so-called information out there that it's really hard for people to filter things. You know, you have an educated group of people, or people who are well informed. Most of you in this room can probably tell fact from fiction, but because there's such a stream of things online that people cannot filter out, I think journalism is much, is much more important than ever to tell a story. But people don't check what is correct and what's not, and they're much more likely to believe social media. And that's why I think we have to double down and do our jobs much more so that people do pay attention to the facts, not the stuff that you see online, which is full of hate speech, et cetera, et cetera. Would you give any advice how to, you know, for normal people, how to defend yourself against the disinformation? How to, uh, I, I don't want people to tell, watch CNN, watch BBC, what, No, what no, no. I, listen, th there's always things that you can tell. When there's allegations made, things are said, said, there's always a line, they say. Who's they? You can see the people who are quoted. See who the sources are of the information. Very often you will see stuff that's not source. It's just a series of so-called facts put together, but Nobody says where they come from. Nobody says how verified the information is. So it's up to us as so-called consumers, because we consume everything from uh, potato chips to news, but it's up to us to check what we are getting and is it, is it credible information. And you can always see if it's credible information or not, depending on who the sources are. Don't uh, go for they say. They say means nothing. I would make it now with another video. Can we look at the Midway Island, please? The one. And, and sound, But please. it's too late for parts of it. Your coffee cup, water bottle, toothbrush, they may all float miles to end up on these shores, inside these birds, the blubber of these seals, in the sand, and invisibly in the waves these dolphins call home. And eventually, these plastics may well end up inside you.
CNN gain rare access to the island to see the toll of plastic you throw away every day and what that might mean for your body. So this is, this is a report we decided to do two, three years ago when um, the World Economic Forum backed a study by uh, several scientists who calculated but the, by the year 2050 there would be more plastic than fish in the world's oceans, which is a pretty stunning number. So I don't know how many of you have heard of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Right, okay. So there's now there's six gyres in the world. But this is the biggest one is in the Pacific Ocean. So we decided to go to the island of Midway, which is not an inhabited island. It's protected. Um, it's got special status. Normal people aren't allowed to go there. And there's a species of albatross that goes to reproduce there. Every year they come back, they lay their eggs, the, s the babies are born, and for the first three, four months of their li lives, the parents feed them until they're ready to fly. So because this island is in the middle of the Pacific, all the garbage in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch swirls around it. So the adult albatross end up scooping up pieces of plastic and feeding them to the baby birds. Can we see Midway Island video too? Here we see how plastic has gotten into a species. How long ago did that die? Not very long ago. Matt cuts open a bird, dead for only a matter of days. So as you open it up, you can see that's incredible. All that plastic that's inside this bird. The same colors that distinguish this brand make it appeal to birds as food too. It's the color of squid. Nobody lives on this island anymore. Nobody's lived on this island for, for decades. So basically, there's no human, direct human footprint there. It's something like 4,000 miles from China, 3,000 3, miles from uh, North America. But the stuff that comes out of all these rivers and coasts ends up here killing these birds. We found cigarette lighters from a girly bar in Hong Kong, Coca-Cola, all sorts of things, helmets for motorcycles. There's no motorcycle for thousands and thousands of kilometers. We found mannequin heads, umbrellas that all end up here. And it makes you realize how much trash we put out there. Every year, eight million tons. And it's getting more and more and more and more, which is why earlier I was talking, a couple hours ago, I was talking about having to do something with the source. We as consumers have a responsibility, but it's gotta stop at the production because it all ends up like this. In fact, all of you eat anywhere, depending on your diet and where you drink your water, if it's out of the tap or if it's out of a plastic bottle, if you eat a lot of fish or not, anywhere from 11,000 to 90,000 pieces of microplastics in your bodies. Um, I, bon want to <laughs> I want to ask you, you also covered Syria very extensively, no? The, uh, uh, civil Syria, war, Syria, not so much earlier, but not very much in the recent years. Um, I mean, you've seen wars, you've seen disasters, you've seen suffering, you've seen uh, a lot of uh, other very traumatic events. W w when is for you or, you know, for other journalists that line, you know, enough is enough. I've seen enough, you know, I would like to now watch movies or, you know, I mean, 
Listen, it's a personal thing. It, it depends what you're driven by. Um, there is a certain, per certain amount of stuff that you have to process. There is uh, post-traumatic tra stress syndrome, like just as the military have. But I don't buy into this thing of, you know, how long do you last? You last as long as you want to last. We are also in a very privileged position. We go to all these places, and we're lucky we survive. We have an airplane ticket out. We have food. I can bring in, if I'm in Somalia, I can bring in food from Kenya. A normal person can't do that. I have a ticket home. I have a house. So, you know, I don't buy a lot into this, you know, uh, I've seen too much. You may have seen a lot, but you haven't had to live through it. And I think that as a journalist, you keep going as long as you can tell those stories that you think are important. And that's what keeps me going. I mean, look at my white hair. I'm not 29 anymore, you know, <laughs> but it's important. What is the most important thing if you, <coughs> or att not attribute, but what is the most important thing or what you think that journalism gave you, the life of a journalist? I, listen, it's a privilege. I've seen history. Um, I also have a very different view of the world. I've learned that the world's poorest people are also the most generous. Um, and I've seen incredible kindness. And there's a certain amount of hope that you carry from these places because you see, like those mentally disabled people, you see people with a huge amount of, of emotional resources to survive these things. You know, and we are quite lucky, you know, we, we're all well-to-do. I don't see anybody starving in this room and I hope I'm not making generalizations, but we are very, very, we're the world's 1%. And it's taught me that it's our obligation to help those who don't have. Because very often, what we have is as a result of these people having miserable lives, like our, like our cell phones. You know, all those precious materials come from the Congo. And who minds there? Now, Apple's tried to address this issue and other big companies. But you go to the Congo and you look at these mines where the minerals come from, there are tiny little kids going in there. They're six, seven, eight years old because they're made out of mud and they're wet and they collapse and the adults can't get in there. So these little kids buy for this for a dollar a day maybe, which is more than they'll ever have. So our fortune is a result of how others live. And I think it's our obligation to not only tell those stories but to try and change their condition. You know, <coughs> uh, is there anything you would define as that, that uh, is there something that you think that journalism took away from you or that, that life on the road for 31 years took away from you? Yes, people have divorces. <laughs> people don't, some of the, some people's children refuse to talk to them. But no, I don't, I don't, there's sacrifices that we choose to make. Again, I, you know, I, I, I don't believe in the victim role. It's something we choose to do. We're privileged to, to do it. Uh, we have to be responsible about it, but I don't look at it as taking something away. Yes, you make personal sacrifices, but then I got to see Nelson Mandela vote as close as you're sitting to me, Tomas. So, you know, there's a price to pay. Um, I just want to, before I open the floor for the audience to ask questions, you know, tell me, I mean, especially now when you are focusing, you know, why don't we play your last, last two clips, please? You know, Greenland number one. Imagine a world where you can sail right up to the North Pole, where the largest ice sheet in the Northern Hemisphere is simply melting away. The melt is winning this, this game. We've now broken all-time records for three consecutive years. 
As oceans continue to rise, flooding the streets of American cities half a world away. What happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. Imagine a world where hurricanes and heat waves wreak havoc. breaking news as Hurricane Irma continues to show no mercy. Just a hellstorm. The fire just whipped. Where politicians deny the problem as temperatures continue to rise. So it's a hoax. I mean, it's a money-making industry, okay? Greenland is an epicenter for climate change. What if I told you this is already happening, right here, right now, that we are the primary cause and that only we have the power to stop it? What is this project about? So this was done two years ago, and the previous year had the worst, worst numbers for the Greenland ice sheet melting. And it's when people really started worrying about the Arctic and how that is going to destabilize the planet. Because the Arctic is changing much more rapidly. The, the temperature rise in the Arctic is double of elsewhere in the world, even more. And it's everything coming from China, from the US, from the industrialist countries that makes it up there and changes what the Arctic is doing. So to, to make people care about this, we actually, we not only filmed in Greenland, but we ended up going to the east coast of the United States where it's starting to show. Um, the US military has a lot of bases, naval bases, which means they're on the water. Some of those bases are starting to get flooded, which is a big thing. The US military, it's, it's a security threat basically for the United States. The Russians, who have a huge Arctic coastline, 50% of the Arctic is Russian coastline, they're being very clever about it. They're building military bases up there. They're exploring because they say, this is our national security, we're gonna protect it. So you can sort of understand why they're doing this. But you can see further inland and down towards, towards the, the 40, 50 degrees latitudes of how much it's changing. Washington DC is going to be underwater. The coast of Virginia, where the world's biggest uh, naval base is, is flooding. Miami has floods on sunny days. So we, we started out in the Arctic to see what's happening there, but we showed the effects thousands and thousands of kilometers away. Because most people won't care about the Arctic. They say, oh, the poor polar bears. It's not the polar bears, it's us. So that's why we decided to go there and then show the connection of what happens elsewhere. And it's, it's tragic what's happening there. And even since then, those numbers have changed and those estimates have changed and the speed of it. Two years ago, nobody was worried about Antarctica. They thought it was much more stable. Now they're ringing alarm bells about Antarctica because they thought that was far off into the future. But it's accelerating, accelerating, accelerating. And they're saying at least two meters by the end of the century of sea level rise up to four, which means almost a billion people are gonna be in trouble. Uh, I also wanted to ask you, ask you how the journalism changed uh, in those years. Uh, I want to ask you now how the world changed. You know, I also been covering a lot of uh, world events last, uh, I don't know, 20 years, and I really think that we are living in a time which there is something very sinister happening, not only with the environment and the climate, but you know, if you see what's happening with the governments in the United States, in the Czech Republic, in Hungary, in 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 Brazil, in uh, the Philippines, you name it. Um, are these really such dark times that, uh, you know, do you see the, the same way or uh, how did the world change and, and uh, did you see better times before? 
Yeah, when I was a kid, it was great. But um, no, the world has changed. Of course, it's changed. And I think because there's so many of us, it is becoming a much more difficult place to live. You know, we have a lot of technology to make our lives easier, but everybody wants what we, the privileged ones, have. Um, and that's very difficult to explain to people, why they can't have it. You know, look at the immigration crisis, for example. But I think this is a critical time to be telling stories and telling how things are around the world, like the climate, because we are in a, in a place where governments do much more propaganda than they used to, including in democratic countries. So I think there needs to be a voice that keeps reminding people of what is happening. Bec around the world, I'm talking about democracies and autocratic regimes everywhere. There's propaganda that fills our lives. Uh, you can even call, you know, commercials propaganda. I mean, you know, people using the Arctic to make commercials. I mean, I think companies that go to the Arctic to make uh, commercials, reclama, as they call it here, um, I think they should pay part of that money to preserve in the Arctic. Just like I think people who, you know, use elephants as a symbol for a logo on a transportation company, I think you have an obligation. It's on every level, you can't take, 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 take. You have to give, and I think journalism is part of that whole big effort of telling a story, not just using, but it applies to everything, to journalism, to commerce, to politics. Are you optimist, or how do you see the future? I refuse not to be an optimist. You can't not be an optimist. Otherwise, what's the point? Yes. Uh, with this, I will open the floor. I mean, are there any questions in the audience? I see a hand there. Uh, thank you so much for, for being here. It's really great to hear from both of you. Um, so uh, I work for an organization that supports um, Syrian freelance journalists. Um, as you probably know, like since 2012, 2013, Marie Colvin, Rami Oshlik, like most of the international media is no longer sending correspondence into Syria. Um, and so I, uh, yeah, so for interesting fact, if you've seen a photo or video from Syria in the past like five years, it was shot by a local person who probably got like $40 for it. Um, so I'm, I'd love to hear more about uh, what you've learned from l working with local uh, technicians, journalists, uh, because they're such a big part of the supply chain of news and, and everyone forgets about them. Um, yeah. it's, a, it's a great question and in fact I've been campaigning to start a media award that recognizes local journalists. Because we would not be able to do what we do if it weren't for local journalists. Because they're the ones who take the risks. They're the ones who have to stay behind. They're the ones whose families get threatened. They're the ones whose mother gets kidnapped so that the local journalist tells them what the Westerners are doing, Wh whatever. But they are key to what we do. We, don't un we can't understand places, you know, journalists we're a weird bunch because we know a lot of little things, but we don't know everything about anything. So we need the help of the people and there's nobody better than the locals to do it. And I think they deserve a lot of credit and don't get enough credit for it because they do risk their lives, they help us understand things, and they need more recognition and they need to be paid well. And insured, because insurance is a big thing. 
Uh, they need to be insured when, when they work for us because they take huge risks. But no, they are, they are the unsung heroes of the journalism world. I mean, I would just say, you know, like when I was in China without the local journalists, I would not be able to exist. I mean, it's, it's, it's just impossible. Another question? Let's just okay. play videos. No, no, no. Okay, so let's, let's finish this video, please. No, then no apparently there is a note. Uh, any, anyway, so I want to um, go ahead and just ask a couple, last couple, couple things. Uh, if you would have that opportunity, would you do it all over again? You know, the, the, the thing, you know, remember... No, I'd be a climate scientist. Yeah. <laughs> Ingrid... <laughs> You know, Ingrid, actually, there is this kind of a launch for uh, the participants of Melting Pot, you know, the, the speakers and, and the, the, the panelists. And there is a lot of sandwiches, a lot of uh, salads uh, there, you know, for us to, to take. And Ingrid refused to eat it because it was in plastic. Uh, can you tell, you know... <laughs> All right. Can you tell about this, how, how these experiences of producing these sort of pieces, how this changed your perspective, and how did you change your life according to your experiences you gained there? I mean, the, the things that feed off each other, and I can see there's a lot of people in the, in the room who are no plastic, so bravo. Um, but I became a vegetarian because of the climate impact, um, going in the direction of vegan, which you know everybody thinks I'm nuts, but. We do have to make changes. Each one of us, I'm not saying you have to make extreme changes, but you have to make a stand. I live in Spain, and there's a little fruit market where I go to buy my fruit and vegetables, because I won't go to a supermarket and buy things in plastic. And I do it because of that thing that I saw in the middle of the Pacific. And I, when I started going there, everything was sold in you know, little plastic bags, because it's easy. After three years of walking in every week and making a scene, the guy now sells in paper. <laughs> so it does, it does change your life. No, but I mean, what, what's important is to make other people understand why everyday actions matter, because, because they do matter. It's like cigarettes. I'm no saint, I've tried to give up smoking and I smoke. But I see all these people throwing away cigarette butts in the streets. Now, if you're not a smoker, it's really disgusting. If you're a smoker, it's really disgusting too. But what happens to that is 3% of ocean plastics are those cigarette butts because they get washed down the drains, they get carried to the sea, you don't see as many because they fall apart by the microplastics, you know, stay there. So I empower all of you to give all the smokers a hard time about that, please. <laughs> But it's the little things that you do. You know, it's everything from smoking to what you buy. I was talking about clothing before. You know, where is the thing made that you are wearing? Who made it? Were they exploited? What chemicals were used? Where were they dumped? There is, there is a thing that we have to do and pressure people to do it. It has changed my life. And it's some of my friends have become a little more distant because I think I'm totally nuts because I won't eat certain things or I will refuse to go to certain places. But I think you have to make choices and I think you have to make a hard line because it's, it's about one second to midnight if it's not midnight yet. And I do think we need to do extreme things to, to change the way things are. The thing is, I was a little bit surprised during the previous panel that you said that 
you, you don't call it, call it a climate change, you call it a clim or climate crisis. Yes. And that you think, you know, like, can you, you know, wh what Ingrid said is that wars comes and goes, terrorists come and goes, you know, uh, ISIS will come and go, Go good governments, bad governments will come and go. But this is something, if we don't do anything about it. It's irreversible, and we're very close to climate tipping points. Um, I've spoken to a lot of scientists over the last couple of years. I don't claim to know much. I take other people's information and I try and process it. But we are very near the tipping point. There are scientists that think we've gone past the tipping point, but we can't afford to go any further. We have to stop because the canary in the coal mine, it's on its back. Well, it is fascinating for me that, you know, I know I did not know that about you. I've learned that today, you know, that after seeing so much and after seeing so many wars and after seeing so much misery that this is the number number one issue. What is your th thing? Do you think it's beyond, uh, beyond, beyond return? You know, because the thing is, you said the action has to be taken like yesterday, you know, today. Yes. And there is no consensus yet in the world on this. You've got massive, you know, United States pulling out of the... Uh, I, I don't see anything coming soon, you know, that the government would get to, the governments of the world would get together and actually do something m more effective. I think a social change is going to happen because governments won't do enough. Few governments, but not enough to change things. The biggest governments with the biggest populations are not doing enough. And I think it's going to be a social change. I, I really think that the generation that's inspired by Greta Thunberg, I think that's what it's going to take. I think it's going to take a mass movement. I don't think any capitalist is going to take things, or very few will take the money out of their pockets to change the future for their children or grandchildren. And you hear this all the time. People say, I don't care what's going to happen in 30 years. I'll be dead. Well, you should care, you know, because it's you, it's your children. Um, but I think it's going to take a huge social movement, like the protests of uh, 68, that sort of thing. I was reading about chi parents who are now refusing to have children because they don't want them mm. to grow up, grow up in this. I will ask again, we have a couple more minutes left. Uh, anybody wants to ask anything from the audience? This lady right here. Front row, please. There's a lot of Americans here. It's nice here. Yeah. <laughs> um, hello. Um, thank you very much for being here uh, and talking to us. Um, so you talk about the young generation, etc. And I have a question. So um, how does CNN or you as a producer, uh, when you produce content like such we have uh, seen the clips from, how do you think about actually uh, reaching the young audience? And the reason why I'm asking is, I've seen stuff from CNN, but usually when I travel and I stay at hotels and there's a TV there, uh, but I don't own a TV. <laughs> um, so I consume kind of, you know, uh, lots of content online and, you know, I subscribe to The Economist and, you know, I listen to podcasts, etc. but not really traditional media in the traditional sense. And I think it's the case of a lot of young people. I'm not saying all, but I think it's a lot a of us. What? It's, a, it's the case of a lot of young people. I think that that's the way kind of how we access the information. So so when, when, when CNN kind of decides to take on a project like that, or you as a producer uh, decide to take on a project like that, do you actually think about how you are going to reach the young audience with that as well? Oh, absolutely. That The plastics thing was done as a digital documentary. So it would appeal to a lot more people. So you do think about that. 
and it's, it's changed. I mean, s s now I look at things I did 10, 15 years ago, and I say, oh, God, that's slow TV or old TV. So you do have to think about it because people, people click all the time. I mean, you touch your phone 2,000 times a day or whatever the statistic is. You know, if people don't engage, whether it's, you know, with interesting pictures or one sentence that sucks them in, you're lost. You have to, have to, have to engage. Otherwise, sh give it up. So it's a constant battle, you know. Thank Hello, you. Aaron. It's another colleague from CNN. Any other questions? You know, in that case, I would ah, There was a woman in yellow. Yeah. yeah. I'm so happy to have a question. You are covering the environmental issues now, but uh, they have been here for like decades, even in the 70s. Uh, the, uh, yeah, the oil, spoil, oil spill in the Gulf Coast and so on. So what made you change your mind to focus on them now and not before? You, you personally. Listen, Couple things. A, I was interested in, in how the world was evolving politically and socially, so that's why I, you know did war zones and you know all that. But it was also ignorance. I didn't realize how important it was until maybe 15 years ago when I started to physically see see changes. I also quit my job and went to live in a tent in a in the bush in Africa for five years, which is where I saw things happening. And I I'd, I'd had a totally different relationship with my environment. And I came back to, uh, to journalism, and I started pushing in the, in the direction of uh, the environment. And because it's speeding up, you see a lot more changes. So I think I probably noticed far too late in life, but better late than never. But tell me what you think, like, what is the global consensus of normal global population? I'm not talking about politicians, about activists, about scientists, about how bad the things actually are. I don't think there is a consensus. I think there's this, I mean, y you look at people who are educated in the classic sense of the world, word and they deny, they say it's weather. It's not weather, it's climate. I don't think there is a global consensus, which is why I think that as much education, as much information as possible needs to be put out there because I do not think there's a consensus. I think the younger generation gets it or starting to get it, but I don't think it's enough. It's gotta be political and it's gotta be regulatory because nobody's going to do it voluntarily. Okay, if there is a uh, interest, there is uh, like 40 seconds for one more question. There is a gentleman here. Uh, thanks, so short question. So we said that you switched to veganism uh, because of the climate change and because of the impact that meat has on the climate. But can you give us some like well sort of scientific sources for that? Because I heard this many times, but I still really like don't believe it because usually just people that are into vegan diets say it. So I always have this at the bias, or is it really true? Okay, there, there are it, it. There have been studies done. This is not pulling things out. To reduce it down to a few facts, it's because producing one kilo of protein with meat 
takes a lot more resources than producing the equivalent protein in a plant source. 80% of agriculture is for basically feeding animals, keeping animals alive, the slaughterhouses, the transfer, it's a hell of a lot of land, 80%. Um, there's a, I did a story on this, on eating beef. If you wanna find it online, you will. It's called the, called the cost of eating beef. Uh, but if we all went vegan tomorrow, the entire planet, it would bring down greenhouse gas emissions by 25%. So I, not, I'm not saying everybody should go vegan, but think about what you eat or how much you consume, and waste is another thing. If waste were a country, it would be the third biggest polluter on the planet of the stuff we throw away. It's stuff like that. But it, you know, for the meat, it's the cow. It's the length of the life of the cow. It's the fields of soy and corn that it needs to eat. It's the nitrates that get put in the soil. It's the poisoning of the rivers. It comes into the gulfs and the seas. Uh, the whole Gulf of Mexico has a dead zone, which is the farmland that pollutes the, the waterways and the, and the land goes into there. So the, the price of eating meat, the environmental price is huge. But it's, it's a stunning fact. If all of us stopped, 25% less greenhouse gases. So even if you eat one piece of meat less a week, I mean, that's, that's a big difference. Thanks. There is one more last question here, please, and this is the very last one. I would just like to connect like, with a uh, vegan uh, diet, and I think I, me as a vegetarian, I agree that we all have to go vegan or vegetarians. But at the same time, we need to educate people to eat local sources, because me as a vegan in Republic of Moldova, eating avocado from South America yeah. and chickpeas from Israel is making more pollution than me eating meat from yes. my grandparents. And um, we, we promote this vegan lifestyle, but we don't explain why, and then we don't promote local farmers, and I think that's, that's, that's bad. Y you're 100% correct, yes. I mean, why use you know, an airplane to bring avocados from, from Peru when you can have something to eat here that's grown well environmentally in a, con in a conscious way? So no, you, no, 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 I'm, I'm not making a case for that at all, and you're totally correct about that. You have to weigh up what you're doing. Uh, we totally run out of time. I thank you very much for coming, and I especially thank you, Ingrid, in your incredibly busy schedule to be able to find time to come to Ostrava. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys.